0: Hello and welcome to Second Rate Film School. I'm Andrew Wass, and today we have a very special guest star, returning friend of the show, and our most repeated guest star, Peter Lauer, back for his third visit.
1: Welcome back. <laughs> Three, Three Pete Peter for Pete and Pete.
0: <laughs> yes, technically the fourth episode of Peter, but that oral history of Crybaby Lane we did is really just one mega interview that I just had to split up into two parts. So third Zoom call with him, but fourth episode. So slight asterisk, but... Still been featured more than anyone else. The reason though Peter is on today is he recently found the storyboards he drew nearly 30 years ago for the Adventures of Pete and Pete episode Halloweeny. These things are super cool and they've actually been unseen since 1994, so this is a really major find for Pete and Pete fans. Back in October, I did a picture-in-picture comparison with the episode itself to show how close and sometimes different it was from the final product compared to the storyboards. So if you haven't seen that yet, the link is in the description, and I highly encourage you to go check it out because it is really just amazing to see the craft Peter put into these storyboards and how instrumental they were in making the show. I also highly recommend you check out the commentary track that we did for the episode last year featuring series creator Will McRobb and Chris Viscardi, who also wrote the episode, and director of photography John Inwood where we kind of go into the overall plot and the legacy of the episode itself all these years on. Now, what we're here to discuss today is Peter's direction style, the crafting of the storyboards, and the evolution from storyboard to the final product. So, Peter, to begin with, how important are storyboards for you as a director?
1: Well, uh, today I storyboard certain sequences that, that demand it. If there's visual effects or stunts or um, a lot of action... I really I love I love drawing storyboards, so it's it's a pleasure for me. But uh, when I was doing Pete and Pete, which is the very beginning of my career, uh, I was obsessive about it. It was kind of crazy, and I I I drew everything like comic books. And they, they it wasn't that I just I didn't just draw the shots I was going to shoot. I would draw the edit, so I would literally draw and have the dialogue appropriate for exactly how I intended it to cut together at the end of the. And I would even time them. I would time the shots and the dialogue, uh, which I think it was a bad habit I got from doing commercials prior to pre- Pete and Pete. So, anyways, I I, I kind of overdid it back in those days. Plus, I had reams of notes before I ever do anything. I had if the, if the script was thirty pages long, I probably had forty-five pages of notes, and then I would draw it. Peter's not exaggerating here. The storyboards were over sixty-seven
0: pages long. He didn't leave anything out, as you saw in the episode comparison. He didn't just do a basic setup of let's say little Pete and Nona on the porch, and then a note saying, repeat shot 32A for all the other times the setup would be used. No, he would do a brand new drawing every single time to just depict the little differences of the character's expressions, the props being handled, etc. What's even more impressive is how detailed these storyboards are. He could have very easily just done little stick figures or just basic drawings to get the idea across, but there's an impressive amount of detail in these, like the kids' freckles, splatter of the eggs, and even writing on props and signs was featured when a squiggly line would have sufficed. Despite the fact that this was never actually meant to be seen by the public, Nickelodeon could have used this as promo material featured in Nickelodeon magazine or even made a comic book. Like, Peter, I seriously do think there's a market here for you to put all the storyboards you did for all of your other episodes out in as like, a coffee table book or comic book or something.
1: Well, I'll sell them if anybody wants them.
0: <laughs> yeah, and we can even create new episodes. Get Will and Chris on the phone. We'll have a revival on our hands. Now, the craft and creativity you had in making these storyboards actually brings me to my next point. As previously mentioned, you just directed the episode with Chris Foscardi writing it. So what was that like interpreting someone else's script into a visual medium that you were going to direct compared to something like Cry Baby Lane, which you both directed and wrote? So was there no difference in your approach to this, or did you feel a little bit restricted, so to speak?
1: Probably not a terribly different, except that um, I think by the time Cry Baby Lane came along, I had learned to do schematics sometimes and not have to not draw every image. I'd kind of given myself a break. I I suppose you you could argue this, that the the Pete and Pete process, when someone else writes the script, in that case, that was uh, Chris Scardi who wrote that primarily, arguably a more creative process for me to storyboard somebody else's writing and to storyboard my own because I've got my own images while I'm writing it. Um, They're they're both fun, but they're different in that regard. It's it's fun for me to to imagine, to take somebody else's uh, ideas and translate them. is a a creative process that I enjoy.
0: Now, there's a very interesting aspect at looking at the storyboards for this. You get to see almost an alternate version of the show that never was. Now, while, yes, 90% of the final episode directly mirrors the storyboards, it's that 10% that's pretty interesting because it can contain minor tweaks to a full-on subplot being removed. Starting with some minor changes, there are several examples where a character was given a line of dialogue that was originally meant for someone else. The first example comes when Frank was coming to tell Little Pete and Nona that this might be the last Halloween ever. In the final product, Little Pete is given several lines that were originally meant for Nona.
1: Our last Halloween. What?
0: A much larger example comes later in the episode with the origin story of Ned Richmond. As it stands in the final episode, Ellen is the one who tells Big Pete about it. And then he narrates it for the audience. Originally, she just told the story. And the pumpkin eaters caught him. He got roasted for everyone to see. Ned's life has never been the same. Now nobody will go near him. Not even in the yearbook. This segment actually contains a much bigger change as well because... Originally, Big Pete and Ellen were supposed to have witnessed the Ned Richmond story as well, instead of just hearing about it as an urban legend. So Peter, when it comes to changing the lines like that, how far in advance would you guys know about this? Would it be a writer's room thing, or would it have been on the set day of, let's just change it up and give these lines to Michael and Danny instead? And likewise, cutting Big Pete and Ellen out of the flashback, would that have been a creative decision, or would that have been a scheduling issue of not being able to have the kids out that late at night again? Or you just don't have time for another camera setup.
1: I now I, I don't actually remember. It's been a long time, and unfortunately, uh, I found my original book for for this particular episode, which had all my notes, it had the script, it had all the storyboards and and other production information. Um, as you can see, I just moved. You know, we just moved to a new place, and in the move, wherever I put that book. I can't find it. I have everything else, but I don't have that. I don't have this one episode, unfortunately. So I don't really remember exactly. um, It would be good for me to just read the original script and review it. But um, I know that I I imagine that most of those changes were made ahead of time. At least a little bit ahead of time. Because when we were filming the, all these Pete Pete episodes, um, the, the, you know, as you can see, the I, I there were storyboarding very uh, specifically. There there may have been some changes that were made after I store between storyboarding and actually beginning production, actually shooting it. Um that might be indicated in the storyboards. But the uh um in generally once we got the set, we shot we shot what was what was boarded. Um even And in in those days, because we were, you know, we didn't know what we were doing. In in those days, we uh, we were so, it was like a challenge. Like, we're going to, we've got way too many shots. We've got 300 shots to get in, in, you know, five days with kids. And it was like a challenge to get the shots, even at the expense of doing more takes than we probably should have. So I'd be like, you know, take two, great, moving on. It was like Ed Wood, you know. So I I, I suspect that... um, that not too many changes were made once we started shooting.
0: Now, Peter actually brings up a pretty interesting point here about the number of shots being daunting and having to eliminate several setups just for time and giving the lines to already existing setups. Um, A great example of that comes when Frank was talking to little Pete known as previously mentioned. The final episode just features a shot reverse shot of Frank on the walkway and the kids on the porch. Initially, though, there was a third setup perpendicular to the walkway, showing all three
1: characters at once, which was obviously cut. That, that was probably done for, for to save time. That was probably done on the day, I'm guessing.
0: Now to move on to some more major changes, one of which is actually featured in this scene. In the final episode, Frank travels on an electric bike that kind of reminds me of the bike Macaulay Colkin rode on in the Page Master. Originally, though, he was depicted to be in a souped-up golf cart. Now, the interesting thing you can actually see on the storyboard is that Peter went in later with a different pen and drew the bike over the golf cart. So obviously this is a much bigger difference than just changing up who says a line or eliminating a camera setup, which could have been done on the fly. This obviously had to have been done well in advance of the production date. So Peter, do you recall, was this a budgetary concern where Nickelodeon's like, hey, we're not going to give you the money for a souped up golf cart for literally one shot? Or was this Chris deciding to change it in the script because it would be more comedic to see him on this dinky bike instead?
1: Uh, I, I don't remember, but what you, what you you just what you just proposed sounds very plausible. <laughs> Prop department probably was like, you know, we can do a better job with a bike than the golf, the golf cart. We can save money there and put it somewhere else. That that sounds reasonable to me.
0: Now, personally, either explanation works, but I do think the visual of him getting off a dinky little bike with a light on his helmet is much funnier than getting out of a souped-up golf cart, because you really do see security guards in these things. I don't know, maybe it was less common in 1994, but this is just a much funnier visual, to me at least. Note from the future, right after we record this, Peter found a bunch more of the paperwork he has from this episode, so we actually have a little bit more information to work with now. His director notes, which are dated from August 29th, 1994, still details it as being a three-wheeled vehicle. However, the shooting script, which is dated September 12th, 1994, now lists it as a moped. So whatever the reason was, this was actually changed pretty late into production, given the fact the episode aired on October 9th. Now moving to the biggest changes, there were several monologues and a whole subplot removed. Starting off in the cold open, Big Pete has a longer monologue that goes into a bit more detail about his dislike for the holiday. Now, while not completely necessary to be featured, it does add a little bit more context and does touch on the element of him growing up and being too old for Halloween, which we do see in the episode. We also get a dirty joke of him watching a 50s B-movie titled It Came From Your Anus, which you can see Peter crossed out with a different title as that clearly wouldn't have been allowed. Additionally, the moral of the episode is actually slightly different in the storyboard versus what we got in the final episode proper. In the final episode, the Pete celebrate Halloween, and Big Pete is a full lover of the holiday again, and we get the implication that he plans on going to trick-or-treat next year with Little Pete to help him break the record. In the storyboards, Big Pete does still have the renewed respect for Halloween, but his relationship with it is far different than the final episode. He flat-out states he never went trick-or-treating again, but he's still glad that the holiday exists for the kids who do. So basically the difference is, in the final episode as it aired, Big Pete learns the moral of, don't be a Grinch, you could never be too old to experience the fun and love of Halloween. And while Mike Morona was 16, so little too old to be trick-or-treating, that is a nice lesson for the younger target audience of the show who may have been feeling they were too old to be trick-or-treating, but in reality could hold on to that fun for another Halloween at least. Conversely, the original ending still does have the theme of don't be a Halloween Grinch for Big Pete, but it's a little different in the sense that Big Pete now enjoys the holiday the same way adults do, like his parents, Frank, etc., but does leave behind the trick-or-treating element of it. Both endings are really good and still do have very similar themes and morals, but you can see how one line being changed really impacts on what the story's meaning is supposed to be. Now, the biggest element of that changed in the episode is a whole subplot's removal. The subplot would have been the dad and Frank having a feud over dad's Halloween decorations being out of regulation, which Frank has to keep fining him for. As it stands, in the final episode, not one bit of that is present. All you really get with the dad is him setting up decorations in the background and helping little Pete carve his pumpkin. I don't even think he has a line. So, Peter, is there somewhere in a vault at Nickelodeon all this deleted footage, or was that cut out way ahead of time?
1: I think I think it was cut beforehand. I don't rem- I don't recall filming that that subplot. Um, poor Hardy. Yeah, he. Uh, it, I, I I wish I could write. You know, if we had Chris Vascardi, would probably remember that better than I do. But I, I don't. I don't think we ever filmed it. I, I have no. I have no picture in my mind of of filming that stuff. Um, Note from the future
0: again, according to the shooting script, which is dated September 7th, that entire subplot had been cut out by then. Um, Dad does still have a few lines that aren't featured in the show, and Big Pete's monologue still is in there. So potentially those were filmed, but seemingly the subplot had been cut out before filming actually began. So no hashtag release the law or cut. Now, was it detrimental to cut all this out? Kind of. On one hand, It is always nice to see more of the parents, and I really do like the joke about how Frank is powerless to stop a bunch of kids, but is like on a power trip when finding dad over and over throughout the episode. It is also really nice to get that sweet moment where you get the implication that dad's love for Halloween has rubbed off on little Pete, you know, it's just a very sweet moment between the two. That being said, the episode is obviously focusing on the brother's dynamic with Halloween, not the father's. Um, and also with Big Pete struggling so much about is he too old for Halloween to have an adult loving Halloween just as much as little Pete kind of muddies the water a little bit. I suppose if we kept the original theme of learning to be able to love Halloween but still put some elements aside as you grow up would work. But in the final episode, having Big Pete have to embrace his inner child, it kind of, you know, overshadows it. Now, while the general moral would have been changed by the inclusion of that subplot and it thus then makes sense to cut it out, several of the other changes obviously were more production issue. You don't have time to do as many camera setups. One change that doesn't fall into either of these categories is Big Pete's monologue. We see that camera setup is used extensively throughout the episode and it fits the theme of the show in general. So Peter, do you know why there would be this decision to
1: cut this one line out? You know, he was... um... So sometimes with Michael Morona, who played Big Pete, um, his voiceovers—you know—he he never blinked. He would—he would—he would do those opening those, those those monologues and would introduce the storylines, and he would never blink. And uh, it was kind of it was kind of charming, and it became kind of a, sort of a thing that uh, it was just a, a you know a hallmark of of Big Pete. He would not blink during these these storytelling. But it also get, becomes, if you hang on it for too long, it becomes a little a little strange. And it's possible that I got cut down to just sort of take the onus off of it becoming, drawing attention to itself, perhaps, you know.
0: I suppose since the episode really does also play with Big Pete's psyche, having him have several visions, doing an extended monologue of him staring unblinking at the audience might have given off serial killer vibes. <laughs> now obviously, we've been focusing mostly on the changes in the storyboards. But I really want to stress how close this is to the final product. I didn't take many editorial liberties while putting this together. The only examples that are really noteworthy are for shots like when Frank is talking to little Pete Nona, as we had previously mentioned, a camera setup was dropped. So I did just reuse a previous existing close-up of Frank because that was what the shot was. The biggest thing I changed was when Ellen shows up to Big Pete as a vision, telling him to smash the pumpkin. Originally, the visions of her appeared reversed from how they were in the final episode, so I just mirrored the image in Photoshop for consistency's sake. Now, I bring this up not to pat myself on the back for how great my editing skills are, though they are pretty impressive. Um, no, I bring this up because I really just like to highlight how efficient the crew was in using these things to make the final episode. The changes I've described have only accounted for like a minute or two worth of footage. So it is very impressive how just, you know, free flowing and natural the show feels, but to find out how meticulously planned it was.
1: Yeah. And it was um like, you know. I didn't I didn't know any better back then too. I didn't know I I didn't know to give myself options. Cuz you don't you know there I'm I'm sure there are instances in this in this episode and as everywhere else where cuz you know in those days you had to shoot a, a show to to time. You, you know there were commercials took up a certain amount of time and you had uh, probably was 21 and a half or 22 minutes for the actual half hour episode and it had to hit exactly so sooner or later, you're going to ha- you're probably going to have a little too much material It's going to get edited down. And when you're when you're when you're trying to sh- when you, if you put the when you put the full piece together and it winds up being just you know 28 or 29 minutes and you've got to lose six, seven minutes, or whatever from it. Those can be really hard choices to make. You know What what do you cut out when you shoot something uh, and you've given yourself options in the way you you photograph it, it makes it easier to make those cuts and successfully. I didn't know that yet. <laughs> so I was I was I was you know shooting for exactly an edit that was in my head. It's very it's very true to what you see on the screen because we didn't shoot anything that wasn't planned.
0: Now Peter actually brings up an interesting point about them not shooting something that wasn't extensively planned even when things were changed later in production. You can still see some pretty extensively drawn out storyboards. Originally, the Pumpkin Eater attack on Mischief Night was done in a much different style and lacked a lot of the elements that we'd see in the final product. However, we do see in the storyboards an insert sheet that looks like it was done at a different time in a different pen that's not in the same page or shot numbering system as the rest of the storyboards. You can also see, while still pretty complex, they are much more simplistic and smaller than all the other storyboards throughout the rest of the episode. So basically what we got was a hybrid between Peter's original more detailed storyboards and the quick nitty-gritty ones he did at a later time. You can really see the dynamic nature of the episode forming in these storyboards and really get a feel for the high-paced energy the edits imply. This half page counts for like 10 seconds of the show. Again, the storyboards are like 67 pages long for a 22-minute episode. They are so detailed, it is incredible. And that's where I should share my gripe I have about how detailed these are that this was a nightmare to edit. I'd be working for like four hours doing 50 to 60 panels and then realize, oh, I've only done like a minute of the show. (laughs) This was not worth it at all. I completely regret starting this project. Damn you, Peter, for finding these. (laughs) Sorry about that. I kid, I kid. Um, But seriously, when you look at how great these storyboards are and how carefully crafted they are and how that informed John's great camera work, and how they work in great concert with you know Chris's writing and all the kids acting, you can see why not just this episode, but the entire series is so highly regarded. All these decades later, you guys could have easily slacked off because this was a kids show, and we probably still would have loved it. But all this work and craft that you guys put into the show is really the reason we still love it thirty plus years later.
1: Well, we never. I mean, we never thought of it as the kids show. It's just a. a and, and, you know, Pete and Pete does work on, certainly works on two levels. It appeals, it, you know, of course it, it appeals to kids. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a child mind uh, that with which it was created and written. But it also is, it's also nostalgic. And so we're, it's, uh, it's it's us as adults reflecting back on our childhoods, which are very much alive. I mean, your childhood is always alive in you. And and everyone on Pete and Pete, we were, we were so ambitious and we loved it. We loved doing it. I mean, it was, these were, Show, every episode of Pete and Pete is, is, is a passion project for everyone involved. The uh, which made it really special to work on, and the the uh, you know it, they they weren't and they weren't episodes. They were like there were each one was like a little was a was a, a mini movie. You know, that's, and and different. You know, like this for me. You know, there was another one called Tool and Die that I did that was that had this other aspect to it, this kind of torture chamber aspect to it. There was another one called the ringing Phone, which was kind of a spaghetti western and I'll get it and of course this one is a is a horror it has a has is the horror genre effectively being uh, exploited and those tropes so yeah every every Pete and Pete had was its own universe and 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 yeah we just, everybody gave their all, you know.
0: Exactly. Now, I go back and rewatch the shows I grew up on, I'd say the vast majority hold up just as well as I remember. There are very few examples where I look at a show and be like, oh my god, why was I watching this? Why did I like that? Um, But even rarer are shows that I look at and I'm like, oh my god, this is even better than I remember. And Adventures of Pete and Pete is one of them. As a kid, I loved the show because it felt so realistic and so true to life. As an adult, I love the heightened sense of reality surrounding the story and how it perfectly encapsulates how kids view the world. Of course, the bullies are so bad, the police are afraid of them. (laughs) In reality, the cops would only put a mild amount of effort into catching the kids. But to a kid watching that, it's complete anarchy. The police
1: are helpless. It, it, It foreshadows cartels.
0: Exactly. So as we wrap up, I just really want to thank Peter for coming on again today and sharing these storyboards with us. Again, any of the ones that you did for all of your episodes would have been great to see, and it would have been a nice little peek behind the curtain into Pete and Pete, but I think it's especially appropriate to do this fan-favorite episode of Halloween. Seeing the craft that went into creating these, and knowing the amount of effort you guys put into making the episode itself, is just truly amazing and you can see why it's such a fan favorite episode of all these years later
1: oh did, did you, ever, you know there was the guy in uh, he was an artist in Seattle who did uh, he, he he took the show and he did a thing called um 30 days of Halloweeny it was a, it was an it was like probably twenty twelve and he he obviously grew up with he, he saw Pete and Pete as a kid obviously and becomes a a, a young adult and he's an artist uh and uh he 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 rendered shots from from this episode and he, he would put one out in full color every day of uh every day of, of October of that year leading up to halloween and um some of them got made into t-shirts and posters you can buy them online i never got a a, a, a royalty from them <laughs> i never even got a free t-shirt i'll give you any
0: royalties this one makes <laughs> But I, I, and I, I've,
1: I've, I've lost the guy's name. I, they were, I was really impra- They were very. I, I was really, you know, proud that this guy did this. And I, I you know, I'm, I'm not, um, I have no qualms with him doing it. But uh, I'd like to find him if he sees this. I'd like to get a hold. Of, I'd like to get a hold of him and, uh, and uh, I don't know what talk to him about it.
0: Yeah, guy, if you're watching this, um, comment below and I'll connect you and Peter for a finder's fee, of course. There you go. (laughs) But yes, those images really are cool. I actually used them for the thumbnail of the video last year, so you can really see how cool they are. I actually really like comparing them to the show and now your storyboards just to see the final product and two different artistic interpretations all side by side. Obviously, since he's working directly from the frames of the show and your storyboards are basically one-to-one with the final episode, as we said, it's just great seeing the wide range of depictions of these moments across the two different mediums and three different styles. I'd love actually to see more comparisons to your storyboards and the final products and the fan art. Heck, like I said, I'd love to just see your storyboards on their own. I'd buy a coffee table book of them. (laughs) Yeah, we can call it the Lauer Collection. We could do it for all of your episodes. You did five, right?
1: I did, yeah, I think I did, uh, yeah, the first season I did Tool and Die and there was a car trip one. And then I did, uh, yeah, season two was, I did Halloweeny, and I did the ringing phone, Spaghetti Western one. Then the swimming, yeah, the swimming pool, which I have not seen, I haven't seen that since way back then. They never released season three, right? That never came out on DVD.
0: Yeah, the story was they had screwed up and already made up all the discs without getting the music cleared for one episode and couldn't secure the rights. I'm pretty sure that actually is true and not just Nickelodeon didn't like the sales of the first two seasons so they just decided not to release a third set. Because there's an image that's been floating around online for years of a purported third season DVD box set that looks pretty legit. It's got the Nickelodeon Rewind Collection logo and looks pretty much in the style of the other sets that were being put out at that time. As to what happened to the sets themselves, well, I'm pretty sure they no longer exist. But the urban legend is that there's a warehouse just somewhere with pallets of these DVDs just ready to go out to the fans one day. But again, I doubt that's true. Why would they be keeping them if they can't sell them? It's been 15 years. They probably destroyed them. That being said, I really do want it to be true because maybe I can do a Raiders of the Lost Ark style expedition to find them one day. Yeah. Unfortunately, this show is impossible to watch legally. Outside of a few of the shorts, the show isn't streaming anywhere, and the first two season DVD sets are long out of print and super expensive on the secondhand market.
1: That's so weird. I wonder why why they wouldn't... Because Nickelodeon spent, I mean, really uh, years, uh, decades, if not decades, kind of trying to recapture the magic of Pete and Pete in other series, a few of which I worked on. Uh, But it was never the same. I mean, Pete and Pete was the was the the apogee of for me of live action Nickelodeon. It's super bizarre because there are a handful of other
0: Nickelodeon shows that have had very spotty physical and digital releases over the years. Clarissa Explains It All is the other one that always comes to mind, only having the first season released and only a handful of episodes available on streaming. If it really is music right issues, I really can't imagine why it's impacting the entire series. Not every episode had copyrighted music in it. Basically, if a few episodes is what's holding Nickelodeon up from releasing all of it, I really think they should take a page out of Warner Brothers' book for what they did for the new Scooby-Doo movies. That was the series that had all the different guest stars like The Addams Family, Three Stooges, Harlem Globetrotters, etc. Years later, Warner Brothers famously had a difficult time releasing the show on any format because they had to get all the different estates to sign off on it. But instead of letting a handful of estates that were being problematic hold up the entire series, they just released most of the episodes as the almost complete series and then several years later when they got all but one of the episodes cleared they just released those episodes as the lost episodes basically getting half the episodes of pete and pete on streaming to me is a lot better than getting none of the episodes of pete and pete on streaming
1: you you would you would think it would be worthwhile cuz they also these shows kind of stand the test of time right they 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 exist in a timeless alternate universe you know
0: For sure. Other than the four by three aspect ratio and the fashion choices, nothing in Halloween or the vast majority of the episodes is particularly dated in any way. Right. Most of the show is just based in childhood antics that are timeless to any generation.
1: Well, there's, you know, I was watching uh, Wes Anderson's um, TV series, doing the Raul Dahl uh, stories, and I think he's shooting four four by three. So, you know, it doesn't bother anybody when Wes Anderson doesn't.
0: Exactly. Now, if the four by three thing, that actually brings up something that drives me crazy, where you see a lot of these older shows basically being reverse pan and scan to make them sixteen by nine artificially.
1: Oh, it looks horrible! It looks horrible.
0: Yeah, people need to be adults and just realize there were limitations to technology at the time, and this was the proper way to see it and just deal
1: with it. It makes absolutely no sense to me. It it looks terrible when you do that. It's not. It's it's it, it ruins every single composition is ruined by that process. And, and who, and who, you know, if you, you watch a, you know, a, a cinema scope, uh, film on your, on your big screen TV, you're going to have the, you're going to have the, the mortise at the top and the bottom. I mean, we, we it, it happens all the time. Plus many filmmakers choose to use four by three or different formats for expressive reasons, you know? So it, it's like to, to, to fight that, uh, you just ruin, you just ru- ruin the image and, um, for no gain whatsoever to fill, to fill a space on a wall, you know, there was, there was a period of time when we were, when we were as a society transitioning from uh, the four by three television screen to, to wider screen, you know, flat screens and whatnot. And uh, there was a period of time in television where you had, where we would shoot, you would, it was called, you would protect, protect for widescreen. So, you were shooting for four by three because the majority of, of America at the time had four by three television sets, but you would protect for the eventuality that one day you're gonna shoot wider. But people got really lazy about it. I think on Malcolm in the Middle uh, in particular, someone was telling me they were watching a Malcolm in the Middle rerun, and they were rerunning it in the widescreen. We, we filmed it, we filmed it, but we didn't clear the set up. <laughs> so you're looking at the if you look at the widescreen, you see a ladder over here. you see some cables over on the other side of the frame. Oh yeah, there are numerous
0: examples from that era. Yeah, famously on Malcolm the Mill, there's several examples where one of the kids' stand ins would have been on the edge of the screen and you wouldn't have seen their face in four x three. But now in sixteen by nine, you can just see that's not Dewey. That's just some other kid.
1: It's it's for it's for no gain. I think it was composed and filmed primarily for four by three. Just to air it that way.
0: Like I said, people need to be adults and just deal with it. I mean, this is the modern equivalent of colorizing black and white movies because no one wants to watch them because they look old.
1: I sort don't understand what the, what, the, what the upside is. for a, just, to, just to fill a space on a, on a machine in, in, in your room, it's like it's pointless. Anyway.
0: Regardless, this has been a fun tangent on Andrew and Peter Pitch about aspect ratios and the problems with streaming. <laughs> but I think we should bring this back to the Adventures of Pete and Pete in this very classic episode. So again, Peter, I just really want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us today about the making of this episode and also just showing us these storyboards. They are super cool. And I'm really grateful that we get to see these now.
1: My pleasure, Andrew. Thank you for having me. And uh, and thank you for putting all the work into, into uh, presenting this uh, unique uh, look at uh, the process.
0: Again, the pleasure has been all mine. And like I said, had you been lazy back in 1994 and just done a bunch of stick figures and said, repeat we'll this shot? <laughs> I wouldn't have gone through the effort to have done the comparison video, and we wouldn't have been able to do this really fun discussion. The biggest crime, though, would be breaking the annual Halloween tradition of having a Peter Lauer-related product be on my channel. We're running out, I think. Is there a Halloween episode of Emily in Paris? Well, if there isn't, tune in next year for a commentary of Frankenstein, where Peter tells us what he would have done if he was the director. (laughs) Well, Peter, it's been great talking to you as always. Again, thank you for coming on. Thanks, Andrew. Now for you at home, if you want to get a closer look at the storyboards or any of the documents that were featured in this video, in the description, there's a link to a Google Drive that feature all these documents that Peter has graciously shared with us. So make sure you check them out. They're super cool to check out. So until next time, I'm Andrew Wasp here with friend of the show, Peter Lauer, and we hope you've enjoyed your time with us.